Apostel von John in Chapter 19 und in Vers 5. Then came Jesus forth bearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. These last key words, Behold the man. Let us see to follow the exhortation of Pilate to that crowd as to ourselves. Behold the man. Let us behold the man Christ Jesus first of all tonight in the spotless sanctity of his humanity, in the sinless humanity. Because that's the way he's set before us in Scripture. That's what we find in the very record of his conception in our nature. You look in the Gospel according to Luke, at the very beginning of that Gospel, you find the great news being given to Mary that she is to bear a son. And the great question, how can, we, how can that be, seeing I know not the man? And she was told that they'll tell the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. She's told the heir of the great miracle that is to take place of how Jesus Christ in our nature is to be supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin by the creative power of the Spirit. But we are here, the holy thing that is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. This was one who is the eternal God who was taking human nature in, in a mysterious and wonderful way into union with his person. And the narrative that you have there brings us that he is conceived by extraordinary generation. He is not by ordinary generation from Adam. He does not have the transmission of Adam's fall into his human nature. His is a sinless nature, the holy thing that shall be born of him. They call the Son of God. He is, was not a sinner by nature as we are, Neither was he a sinner by practice. He is without Adam, the tent of Adam's followers. And you find in the scriptures also that that, uh, the testimony of his sinlessness is what you find from friend and foe alike. Which may be what you'd expect from his friends, from his disciples. You find them saying, the true record that he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. In him was no sin. But you find it as the testimony of his enemies also. You find even Judas, on the, Judas who betrayed him, saying, I have betrayed innocent blood. You find it in the words of the thief on the cross. Both thieves reviled him at the beginning. One was turned from that reviling. And we find him then rebuking his erstwhile friend who is still in the process of reviling. And he's saying, and we indeed justice, we deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. You find it in the testimony of uh, the, the centurion. Certainly, uh, this was a righteous man. You find it in the testimony of um, 
even even the the the, the, the demons in the man called Legion, we know that there was the Christ of God. He could himself speak to the scribes and Pharisees who were always going about scrutinizing to find the tiniest fault, the type, the slightest reason that they could uh, bring a charge of sin against him and that they could dispatch him. And he could say to them, which of you convinces me of sin? And they were quiet. It's the testimony we find of friends, it's the testimony we find of foes. It's what we find of him, he is without sin. Certainly you find in scripture, it's the testimony of God the Father. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. You'll find certainly evidence at the temple in his dealings with the money changer of anger, but it's a sinless anger. As he takes the thorns in his hands and as he expels them from the presence of the temple. It's an anger that is not a burst of temper, but is calm and controlled. Divine anger is like that. It will be like that to the unrighteous at the day of judgment, as he commands them in his wrath to depart from him in everlasting darkness. It is not in a spirit of vengeance, as carnal anger is. It's in a spirit of love. Look, for example, at uh, the Gospel according to Matthew on chapter 23. You find there the righteous anger of Jesus uh, uh, going out towards the scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, the chapter goes on. Hypocrites, it speaks of them as. But notice how he ends that chapter with the tender words of, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you unto myself. That's not a spirit of vengeance, that's a spirit of love. And um, it's not because his own ego is being injured that this anger is displayed. That's the way it is with all sinful anger, so often we are shame. But with him it's because the honour of God, the honour of the Holy God, is being um, injured. That's what brings it out, this holy anger, or that we would have some of it in our hearts. It is sinless. He was a sinless man. He was sinless not only in, in, in to the extent that there was no sin, sinful actions. He was sinless in that there were no sinful words. And it went deeper than that still. He was sinless in that there were no sinful thoughts, and it went deeper than that yet. He was sinless in that there was not a sinful motive, not a sinful motive. God looks on the heart. The sinless man, let us behold him in the spotless sanctity of his humanity. Now secondly, let us Behold the man as the rule for all men. Behold him as the rule for all men. Now what I mean by that is this, if you're building a wall, 
let's say with concrete blocks. You haven't yet plastered the side wall, but you've finished the work. And you want to see if your handiwork is on the plumb, as they say, if it's on the square. Well, what the craftsman will do will be he will take a plumb line and set it against that wall, and it will soon show if his work is on the squares, if it's in proper alignment. Now, what the plumb line is in the material sphere, the law of God is in the moral sphere. The, mor- the law of God is the plumb line by which you line and my line. Not just the outward actions, not just the words, not just the thoughts, but the motives is to be measured. Are we in alignment with the holy and just will of God? And Christ is the embodiment of the law. He came to fulfill the law. Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believes it. So Christ himself is the true plumb line against which we are to be measured. And it's when we are brought against that true plumb line that the crookedness of our hearts will be shown us. We measure ourselves against, uh, against the plumb line of the lives of other men. We might think ourselves even better than that. If we measure ourselves by yardsticks of humanism, or such yardsticks as might, might obtain of what is morality in our nation today, we might say, oh, we're better than them, and we might look down with contempt at others. But when we are brought face to face with Christ as a plumber, then the depravity of our hearts is brought into prominence. It is highlighted. He is the rule by which we are to measure ourselves and to seek grace indeed to measure ourselves. And that particularly in a day of self-examination. Now, this chapter, you find there are those who are brought face to face with Christ as a plumb line. It just, it was so ordered in God's providence that they were brought into contact with Christ as a plumb line. And their lives and the depravity of their lives is highlighted. Because he is the rule against which they are shown. Look at them. Let's look at one or two of these. First of all, let us look at the scribes and Pharisees. Now, you know yourselves the sort of image that they portrayed of themselves as a law keeper, meticulous in the external keeping of the law. And they had that um, image uh, among the populace that they were at sober and a righteous people. But when they are brought face to face with the rectitude of Christ, 
and the just and sovereign claims of Christ as a divine person upon them. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Notice that all the veneer, because that's what it was, of outward decency, of outward lawkeeping, of outward righteousness, it was shivered into bits in order that they could vent their hatred. But the whole depravity which are bent against the Christ of God. They threw away every, every bit of that um, veneer of righteousness in order that they could have the claws upon it. That's the way it was. And that's brought out so clearly in this chapter and in the context of uh, the gospel portion. for example it was their own rule it was their own rule that nobody who was being tried for life should be submitted to trial during the night hours but it was during the night hours that they took Jesus and tried him notice also how they threw away their own their own standards what have been their own standards in all the different that catered upon him you have it in that they had a prejudiced judge uh, over the committee, the Sanhedrin, that was trying him, the court in which he was being tried. If you have a person brought for trial today in Britain or in any of the Western countries, you'll find that often before the trial occurs that there will be a vesting of the jury and a vesting of the jury so that if any one of them is considered to have the slightest reason for showing prejudice against the accused then that, that person of the jury will be set aside and another will take its place such will be the, uh, the design to obtain uh, justice and to, to, to see that justice is done now here are these Jews, these scribes and Pharisees who pride themselves so much on their justice and their law keeping that in order to show that hatred and to prevent their full feelings against Christ, they threw away even that. Caiaphas was the man who was the president, the judge in over that, over that uh, Sanhedrin. And even in this chapter, there's reference that on a previous occasion he, had, he was the one who had said that Jesus should be given up in the interest of the nation. There, was, there had been a prophecy, there had been a, 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 it was a way in Israel. And he was quite quickly at home before that he was quite prepared to use that in order to, uh, to, 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 to dismiss Jesus. He was, he was to be given up as it were for in interest of the nation. Well, there's reference to it in this chapter, and you'll find the full of reference to it in the, in the chapter 15. And yet, that was the very man who was the president of the court, one who was biased, and known to be biased, against Jesus. You have the same thing in um, the Gospel according to Luke, in chapter 22, you'll find a fuller account of the trial. And you'll find that they used um, false witnesses. 
Wir zeigen, dass der hat unkörperlich die Gäste. Wir zeigen, dass er sie eben schmuckt. Wir zeigen, dass er When he confessed to being the Son of God, when he said those things, when that was indeed true, he was saying, you have said it. You may well say that. He was, he was giving the affirmative. And immediately they clung to that, and they said he was guilty of blasphemy, and that therefore he was uh, to be put to death. But they couldn't themselves put him to death. That was the, 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 the Palestine of that day was almost like the Palestine of today. Uh, they were under Roman rule. But though they were under Roman rule, they had a measure of uh, self-independence. A measure of self-independence to the extent that they could have their own law courts, their own system of jurisprudence. And they could try a man like Jesus themselves. And they could bring out the, the sentence against him, but they couldn't put him to death. If, um, if he was to be put to death, it must be brought to the Roman authorities, he must be brought to the Roman judge, to the Roman procurator, and tried there. And so, because they were determined that nothing else would do but to put him to death, they brought him to the Roman authorities. But what the question then was, how are they going to bring a charge against him there? The new time when they came to Pilate, that if they said to Pilate, we're accusing him of blasphemy, Pilate would have nothing to do with that. That would be a religious thing that belonged to the Jews themselves, they would say, taste him and deal with that friends. So they brought him, and uh, when Pilate said what was the matter, uh, they tried to bluff it at first and say that he was a malefactor, a very Unspecific, they didn't, they weren't specific in the charge. But then Pilate insisted that they bring a clear cut charge. And notice how they turn things round. It's not blasphemy that they bring against him, no. This is brought out in other documents. They brought a charge of sedition against him, of treachery against, against Caesar, of refuse, of ca causing the nation not to pay their taxes to Caesar, a reference to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But notice the important thing, they have turned it round. From being a charge of blasphemy, which the new Pilate would ignore, to one that Pilate would be forced to deal with, a charge of sedition and treachery. Oh, how the wickedness of their hearts is shown us. And notice all that time they still clung to their, they still clung to their outward decency. They wouldn't go into the hall of Pilate in case they were defiled. And uh, in case that external defilement would keep them from celebrating the Passover. Or how we can cling to these outward decencies while their inward heart is shown to be rotten at the core. Rotten at the core against the rebellion against God's holy claims against them brought out so fully. Oh no, there are many scribes and Pharisees who just yet clinging to outward decencies and having an image of um, law keeping and good works and outward righteousness. 
that can draw face to face with the claims of the Holy One. This is still the reaction of the Carnival. We will not have this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Take him out of my environment. Let me lose my way. It is the same response. The response of unbelief. And the claim is there to you and to me yet. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. It's from the righteous one. It's from the divine one who has just claimed upon it. Not part of the heart, but all submission to his knowledge. Now look at Pilate himself. Brought against the rule of Christ. Christ as the rule. What image would Pilate desire to portray of himself? Pilate would want to portray of himself that he is indifferent to religious things. Indifferent to religious things. That he's neutral as far as religious things are concerned. That's the, that's the way he wanted to portray himself. What is truth he said contemptuously? There are many who today say that. Just that Pilate said it. How can you possibly know what truth is? There are so many competing claims to what truth is. There's a Protestant claim. There's a Roman Catholic claim. There's a Mohammedan claim. How can we possibly know what religious truth is? And these men will say, A plague in all your houses will have nothing to do with that. A contemptuous what is truth anyway. Let me live my life not at that level of religious truth, but let me live my life at the level of the mundane and the secular. You talk to them about politics, you talk to them about what's in the newspapers, about economic truth, about political truth, they'll talk about that and if they're an interest in that, as long as you like. But religious truth, no, they will not have anything to do with that. They are going to live at a different level altogether. They are going to be neutralized in that area. Each and every one can have his own viewpoint. As long as they don't offend one another. Long as they can be neutral towards one another. And isn't that what we find throughout your land today? And not only will there be that attitude of we won't have anything to do with that religious truth, let us live at this level, this level of the mundane and the secular, but they will claim principles of tolerance. And they will claim the principles of tolerance in the way that I've said. Let everyone do his own thing as long as we don't offend one another. And not only will they claim these principles of tolerance and of liberalism, that they would even consider themselves to be superior to those who have, those who are the church-going ones and those who, who look to religious truth. 
previously wicked on with one another. But these men, these are the ones who cause wars and disputes. Religion brings all the wars. What is good? We want to be indifferent. We want to be neutral. We want to live our lives in a calm, cool way, unreligious way. Such was Pilate. And he's brought face to face with Christ as the yardstick. These men seem so decent, so liberal, so tolerant, sometimes can even look better as of in saying than those who hold to religious truth. Now you have him brought face to face with Christ. And at first, At first, Pilate clings on. Pilate clings on at first to a show of indifference and uh, to tolerance and to neutrality in religious things. When the Jews came up to him with Jesus, he insisted on a specific charge being brought, as I already said. was clear to him from the beginning that this was a trumped up charge that they were bringing against him. And after uh, uh, there's, there's evidence of that in Matthew's gospel, I can't put my finger in just now, but uh, that he knew that it was a trumped up charge, but he knew it because this was the last thing that the Jews would bring a charge against anyone, of treachery against the emperor of the, the hated emperor of Rome. Pilate knew that that just did not bring to him. He knew that it was a trumped-up charge from the very beginning. So he tried to show his principles of tolerance and neutrality. At first he did his utmost to let Jesus off. Let me, let me point out what I'm, what I'm trying to get at first of all. As he's brought against the yardstick that is Christ, what is shown up is that he's not, not neutral at all. We're going to find that there is a God with a small g, an idol God at the throne room of his heart. That means that he is not neutral at all, but that he is indeed full of opposition and rebellion to the claims of the Christ of God. That's what we're going to find. But at first he puts on a show of, in, of neutrality. He insists on the charges. And then he sought to use a device by which to release Jesus. To release Jesus. As long as he could attain his own idol God, and his idol God was his self-interest. As long as he could worship that God of self-interest, well, he would be his utmost to let Jesus off. There was a custom that the Jews had to release a man at that time. He tried hard with that method, but they, it was cast aside. The crowd said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. He failed in that device. He tried still further. He took him and he had him scourged. 
and then he brought him out with the rivulet of blood running down his face from the crown of horns that spiked his head, and with the back scourged, bleeding, a pathetic figure. And he said to them, Behold the man, no doubt, hoping that there would be pity shown, and that the crowd would say it if he not, let him go. He was doing his utmost to have the Christ of, to have Jesus released. But all the time, as long as he could retain his idol God in his heart, the idol God of self-interest. And when it comes to the point where he has to make a choice between the idol God of self-interest and the claims of Christ, then Pilate is shown for what he is. He is not neutral. He is not neutral at all. He will make a show still, of course, of washing his hands and declaring his innocence. He will make a show of, if you take him and you do it, that he's the one who is in fact giving him to be crucified. He's showing the hatred against the Christ of God. He's not neutral, he is opposed. He's shown to be not neutral at all, but opposed to him. What was the God that took first place with Pilate? The God of self-interest. He wanted to protect his own job at all costs. And he knew that if word got to the Caesar of Rome, and the Jews indeed would have made sure that it got to the Caesar of Rome, that a charge of sedition had been brought against this man Jesus, and that Pilate had dismissed that charge, that the Caesar of Rome would be very annoyed with Pilate, and that Pilate's job would be out the window, as it were, and that his job would be on the line. His self-interest, the God of self-interest, would, would be like Diego. It would be knocked down. Now, when it comes to the choice, the claims of Christ, all the pretenses of neutrality now go, taken and crucified. Even though he declares he finds no fault in it. Is that the way with yourself? Aren't there many pilots still living? Professing a liberalism and a tolerance and a religious neutrality that sets them as being better than religious men. But when it comes to the point, the hatred against the claims of God is shown and that brought face to face with the claims of Christ. There is no neutrality. He that is not for me is against me. There is no putting on fence. We are either in Adam or in Christ. We are in the camp of sin or in the camp of righteousness. We are in the camp of the lost or in the camp of the saved. There is no in between. We could have gone on at the time alone to look at how the crowd reacted in the face of the claims of Christ. And you find that the crowd was the same as the crowds of today, going by the yardage of popular opinion. That's the great God of our nation today. 
the opinion polls. And that's how it was with them, although there wasn't a scientifically uh, done uh, poll there. It was a matter of what the others do, we will do, and they went with it. The cruelty of the crowd, the fickleness of the crowd is shown up in even greater uh, silhouette against the claims of Christ than it would normally have been. Crucify him, take him away. They turned up in a holiday spirit, seeking that they might have a prisoner released from the Roman authorities, as was the custom every year. They didn't expect the claims of Christ to be brought before them. But they were there in God's providence and the claims were there. Many a time you didn't expect the claims to be brought before you. But you were there in God's providence where the word was preached. What think ye of this man? You were there and the witness was made by a godly man of prayer spoke to you. We can't go away from these voices to us in God's providence as to our relationship with Christ. We can't go away without them having their own effect. The claims of the gospel will go forth and um, they will be a savour of life unto life to some. To those who are submissive to these claims, those who seek the grace and who by grace submit to these claims, but to those who rebel against them, to those who neglect them, to those who reject them, to those who go away from them, a savour of death and to death. He is the yardstick for the pilots of our day. He is the yardstick for the legalists of our day. He is the yardstick for those who do not, who don't consider religious things, but who just go with the crowd. The same yardstick, the same one, and we are to behold him, behold him as the judge, behold him as the judge of all men. We are all going to stand before him. When we stand before him, all if we are if we are standing before him as those who have neglected, rejected, ignored the place, then all our sin is going to be shown. It will be a there clear before ourselves. We stand before this righteous one. And we would cry that day for the rocks to fall upon us. We would cry for annihilation that day. That would be a mission. But it will not be so. We must face those just claims of God in the nakedness of our own passions. Or else, as the believer, with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. We are to behold him today while it is yet called today. The night cometh when no man can work, and there's no, no device of salvation in the grave. We are to behold him now as the one who is the Christ of God. 
Oh, that we would be enabled, that we would be seeking grace. Seeking grace to see ourselves as we are against the plumb line that is Christ. Against the plumb line of his own truth and his own word. That the Lord would show us ourselves. That he would show us this heinousness and evil and depravity of our foreign hearts. And that he would not only show us ourselves and our need, but that he would enable us to come to the one who was able to meet us, to meet us, and who is waiting to be gracious to the contrite sinner, to the returning and repentant soul. Come unto me, he says to them, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gave himself on the cross in the Roman place of sinners. He led sinners there the cross. It wasn't just that he was clinically and efficiently bringing forth the righteousness that God commanded of them as the surety that he was bringing that forth. He was certainly doing that. But remember, it's not just a clinical and efficient act. This act of righteousness of the cross. It's the spirit in which it's done. A seal for the holiness of God. The very holiness of God's law that was dealing with him. Of the sword of justice that was dealing with him as the one who was made sin. Oh, the seal for that holiness was there. And there was also there a love and everlasting love for those in whose place he stood and those in whom as their substitute, for whom as their substitute he was bearing the sufferings of the cross. All of you would consider that the spirit of zeal for the holiness of God's transgressed law that was dealing with them, and the spirit of love for those in whose place he stood. As the late uh, Professor McMullan puts it in his book, there was no place he wanted more to be than in the whole universe at that point than on the cross, honoring, magnifying the law of God, and showing forth that mercy of God to sinners. Truth and mercy chosen together. And when we, by the grace of God, close in with him, acknowledging that the glory of salvation is all of him, that we contribute nothing to our salvation but our sin and the shame of our sin. Not even our faith do we contribute. It's the gift of God when we cast ourselves in our nothingness upon him. When we see grace to do so, that the pride and the prejudice that is in our fallen hearts would be taken away, the pride and the prejudice that crucified the Christ of glory, that the Spirit of the Lord would make us a willing and a humble people to cast ourselves upon him when we are come when we are in when we come submissively and cast ourselves upon him in him we can say 
He loved me and he gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. And that is the great wonder to the, to the sinner. To the sinner who has been convicted of his sin and who has been enabled to see the beauty of Christ and who, who has obtained the sweet persuasion of his sin forgiven through the shed blood of Christ. Peace with God. Well, do you know anything of that tonight? Have you known that in your experience? What is your relationship with this Christ of God? As the, he stands before us in this place where the two or three are gathered together, what think ye of the Christ of God? What is the relationship of your heart to this Christ of God? Is it rebellion? Is the rebellion of the scribes and Pharisees? We will not have this man to rule over us. Whatever your outward show of decency. Is it the reaction of um, Pilate, whatever his outward show of neutrality? Take him and crucify him. Is it the reaction of the mob with their free and easy attitude? Going by the opinion polls. But yet say, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Is that your, your response? Or is it the response of the one who has found them, who has closed in with God's glorious way of salvation in Christ? He loved me and he gave himself for me. And how can I show forth love to him who has done all for me? Take the question home. Let us all take it home. What think we of Christ? Let us pray. O gracious one, grant us grace to examine ourselves in the light of the passion of Christ as he is set before us in the gospel. To examine ourselves in the light of his truth, of his commandments as they bear upon not only outward actions and words and thoughts, but in the motives of our hearts. Grant us grace to examine ourselves against the words of the same on the moment. Grant us grace, O Lord, to examine ourselves against the words of the letters to the seven churches. O grant us grace to do so, so that we would humble ourselves, acknowledging that there is no good thing in us, but all let us praise thee that there is worthiness within. Worthy is the Lamb that is slain, and that, uh, that it is true spirit. This man receives sinners unto himself and subs with them. But this is the one who says, Wilt thou be clean? Oh, grant. Grant that we will be coming to him. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean to hear the words that he alone can speak, I will be thou clean, that our hearts would be cleansed of sin through his shed blood. Have mercy upon us, prepare us for all that is thy will concerning us throughout this coming weekend, as we seek to remember, in accordance with his command, the Lord's death, until he come. The glory shall be thine in his name. Amen.